Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 44. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And we have new sound equipment. We've actually got a real podcasting setup now. We've got more than just like a tiny ghetto USB mic. It uh, took a bit of learning on my part to figure out how the stuff works, but I'm hoping the sound quality will be even better than it was in the past. Yeah, luckily we don't have to huddle around a microphone anymore, so we're actually sitting more than half a foot away from each other. Yeah, it's actually kind of nice. We don't have to cuddle. I mean, when we were with Oliver Taza, that was maybe when we realized like (laughs) three people cuddled in pretty close proximity is maybe a little bit too close for comfort when we're recording podcasts. Uh, If we're going to be getting more guests on in the future, then this is awesome because it means that now we have the right equipment. We can kind of set up in a more comfortable spot and one step i guess towards building like a real podcasting studio yeah well how's it going steve it's going pretty good it is we're recording on saturday for those who are well i guess no one has any idea when we record this we normally try to live we normally try to record like a, a week or two in advance so we're trying to get some episodes out of the gate now Matt had a great idea for an episode. Uh, He's probably going to take most of the wheel on this one, but the topic that we want to talk about is rule sets. Now, my understanding, Matt, is we're not talking exclusively about particular rule sets and how they work, but also at a higher level, how these rule sets can actually change the nature of the art itself. Is that correct? Yeah. So anyone who follows competitive jiu-jitsu knows that there's a variety of different rule sets in jiu-jitsu and grappling in general and really those rule sets are what defines how the sport is played um you know for instance if you want to take something like judo and compare it to brazilian jiu-jitsu they're really two heads of the same you know dragon but the only part is that hydra yeah (laughs) you know what i mean um there are two two heads of the same hydra which i believe is is it an eight-headed dragon yeah i mean there's six other heads we haven't figured out what those are yet yeah probably uh gracie (laughs) self-defense that might have been like my favorite episode that we've ever done the gracie self-defense episode um but yeah uh you know you take judo and you take bjj and what really define what what differentiates them is the the rule sets right you know in one you're trying to keep it on the on the feet and land big throws and if it goes to the ground you know occasionally you can work ground technique or newaza and in brazilian jiu-jitsu it almost well, I'd say, you know, definitely over 50% of the time you, you skip right past the, the standing part and someone pulls guard right away and you're into the guard passing. So um, even though they both have the same, a lot of the same techniques, 
uh, you know, the reasons that sometimes the techniques will be modified from one art to another or the strategies is because of the rule set. So for instance, in judo, if it hits the ground, a lot of the time someone will just go belly down and basically be like a log shape and just wait for the referee to stop the match, completely exposing their back and, and, you know, basically allowing the person to start an attack if they want. But oddly enough, in Olympic judo, you see a lot of people just ignore this, this, portion of the match and they just would rather stand up and try and land big throws where you know in jiu-jitsu if you give that to someone that's basically a death wish yeah yeah it's funny how uh, i think it was clig guida i heard doing an interview one time and he comes from a wrestling background and he was talking about the first time he tra- he actually fought in an mma fight and he just immediately gave up his back because that's totally fine to do if you're wrestling you know when you get put to the ground you think oh i'll just you know turtle up and of course he got like choked out <laughs> So, um, so it's, it is interesting how rule sets can really modify and adjust uh, the art itself. You know, usually in the short term, there's some reason why a rule is put into place, but over the long term, all of these rules can kind of have like a ripple effect and can really change the course of development of that art. Uh, The example I'm personally probably most familiar with is judo which over the years has evolved quite a bit, um, mostly to differentiate it from wrestling, because as an Olympic sport, you have to constantly justify your value. And if someone looks, you know, some committee person takes a look at your your art and says, oh, this is just the same as wrestling, then you can risk getting cut. So, you know, they've got to make it unique. And as a result, they start doing things like taking out leg takedowns. And, you know, yeah, maybe that does make the art itself more unique and give it its own unique flavor, but it also waters down the art by removing some of the actual most useful techniques that you have at your disposal. Now, jujitsu, I I don't know if we've seen an impact to the same degree that we have with judo, but I, you know, we've talked in the past about how some of these rule changes really risk watering down the art by taking away things that would be very viable in a real fight. And the Probably the most um, immediately understandable example would be leg reaping or various types of leg locks. You or know? even takedowns. Yeah, I mean, even... It's not really like encouraged in IBJJF rule set. So I think a, a lot of stand-up fighters would say that, you know, you're watering down jiu-jitsu because you're not really rewarding takedowns very much. So as a result, people just pull a guard and then you could make a very valid argument that that is not good for street self-defense. Well, yeah, that's actually a really good point, which is that when you're talking about takedowns, I mean... These are not banned in jujitsu. It's not like leg reaping, but... Yeah, it's just a waste of time. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's the thing, right? Like, it it is exactly that. It's a waste of time. You're burning tons and tons of energy for two points when there's actually more efficient and effective ways under the jujitsu rule set to get those two points. So the problem is that the rules in this situation have possibly led to the... I don't want to say the watering down of, but, you know, there's a very effective weapon that is supposed to be in the grapple arsenal and it's almost completely overlooked in jiu-jitsu and i you know i can say this from um from experience uh, mostly my own there are a lot of people even at the black belt level who have just a joke of a takedown game because you don't need it i mean i'm one of them right like i, I rarely do takedowns my entire strategy is to get the guard that i want and go for sweeps or submissions and there's a this massive hole in my knowledge simply because the rules that we play under don't encourage you to go there yeah. and it's it's also very easy given the rules that we have for your opponent to refuse to allow you to go there even if you want to yeah and as a result sometimes as i saw today i was at a tournament and i was explaining to one of my uh 
junior students about you know we're talking strategies and he's like yeah i really want to stand and i'm like i don't know man maybe you should pull guard and he's like no i want to stand i'm like all right you know it's this is your experience so go in there and and stand with the guy so he goes and stands and the other guy immediately pulls him to close guard and he actually ends up getting swept um luckily he was able to uh you know make scramble into back into a close guard and resweep the guy and win the match but it was just like it just goes to show that because of how the ibjjf rule set has um modified the sport sometimes it can just be a race to the bottom you know the person who gets to the bottom first now has the scoring position and this is how a lot of people play play the game under the ibjjf rule set and you know the um i'm sure most most of you who are listening know but the ibjjf rule set is basically it's almost the unified rules of at least gi jiu-jitsu um whereas adcc would probably be the no gi equivalent in terms of you know the most prestigious rule set or the most popular rule set so um two very different arts and again showing how you know it's not necessarily about removing the gi that changes is the art itself but for instance in ibjjf there's no penalty for pulling guard as long as you make grips throughout the entire match it almost favors the guard puller whereas something like adcc the rule sets are you know the first five minutes there's no points halfway through the match they turn on points and then from there if you pull guard uh it's negative one or i really yeah huh yeah, so so if you pull guard, you get negative one point, I guess. And then in overtime, the same thing. So if you want to go far in the ADCCs, you really have to be a decent wrestler and you have to be willing to wrestle. Whereas in IBJJF, you could be legitimately a world champion and not wrestle at all. Interesting. I mean, this is actually super interesting for me because as we've talked about many times, I mean, I, I don't compete. I don't even really follow competition. So when it comes to the IBJJF, just through years of training in the gi, I've had the rules drilled into my head pretty hard, but I don't really watch or pay attention to a lot of no gi stuff. So I wasn't even aware until we started talking to Oliver Taza about exactly how different the rules are in the Oh, ADCC. super different. So maybe it would be good to go over that because I am also often surprised a lot of the time how even really senior people don't understand the rules. Um, it's very, very yeah. common to get confused mm-hmm. there. So, I mean, going through the major rule sets, uh, like you said, Matt, probably the most well-known rule set is going to be the IBJJF rule set. I mean, generally speaking, and Matt, you tell me if I'm making an error here, you know, you get two points for a takedown, you get two points for a sweep, you get three points for a pass, four points for mount, four points for back mount, two points for knee on belly. Exactly. And and there's certain things that are illegal up until a certain level. There's also certain things that are just never legal. Uh, The majority of leg locks, with the exception of ankle locks, which are legal at white, um, but the majority like um, toe holds and knee bars, those you don't unlock until you get to brown belt. And heel hooks are never legal in IBJJF. Um, There's also, I believe, a whole bunch of moves that you're, that submissions that are illegal when you're like um, below 16. But I can never remember what those are. Is it is that the case, Matt? I believe that when you're in the kids' divisions, there are some move, submissions that are yeah. banned. Like you're not allowed to pull down on the back of the head during a triangle. You're not allowed to... Um you're not allowed to jump guard. You're not allowed to do single legs with your head on the outside, which, you know, are all, are all I think, good things. Um, but the, the pulling down... And you're not allowed to, I think, do... I don't know what age you're allowed to do omoplata, like finish omoplata, because I don't know. It's it's weird how they make up these rules, but I guess they, they think that the kids don't have enough control to either uh, control the force that they put down on someone's shoulder with their leg or in terms of the triangle, they just, 
you know, they don't think that kids have strong enough necks, I guess, that they can tolerate like a triangle pulling the head down. But I really don't know where they get these rules from, because if you ever watch kids wrestle, they're slamming each other's heads <laughs> into the mat. And, you know, it's just part of the sport. Right. Yeah. So. I, I kind of wonder if it's less that they don't think the kids can do it and more <clears throat> just that like the really there's no important reason for them to do it. Like if mm-hmm. you're a 14 year old, is it really worth having any kind of like actual risk in a tournament for 14 year olds i think that might be where it comes from is just that like you don't really have serious high level tournaments at that level if they're still kids it's not worth taking those kinds of risks Mm -hmm. i mean that said i never thought of like triangle chokes as particularly dangerous but uh, i guess someone else feels otherwise so yeah i mean if you don't tap (laughs) yeah (laughs) well yeah that is the case with literally any move right yeah exactly and and ibjjf is basically like i said like the almost the unified gi rule set for jujitsu uh at least modified variations of it but that is pretty much the status quo you go to most gi tournaments that's the rule set you're going to go to and some tournaments will will go outside the box and they'll allow certain things like they'll allow leg locks at lower ranks or they'll mix up the ranks i've been to tournaments that you know have open open belt levels and and weight divisions and you know allowing different submissions um some tournaments like some tournaments uh like locally cbjjf has the ibjjf rule set but then recently what they've been doing for uh nogi advanced divisions is adding heel hooks and for me probably a good idea yeah and and reaping as well and for me i think that's actually the best rule set in my opinion uh as uh, coming from a jujitsu background if i was from a wrestling background transitioning into jiu-jitsu i'd probably favor the id the adcc rule set you know mm-hmm. if, if if your strength is takedowns then you're probably going to favor the rule set that is uh more advantageous to the wrestler whereas me i'm quite happy to sit on my butt so i enjoy the rule set where you can pull guard without penalty and then you can reap and do heel hooks as well because it really does it really changes the the game you know like next week i'm going to tacoma to do the revolution tournament and uh i'm doing gi and nogi and the nogi division um it follows the IBJJF set. So there's no reaping and there's no heel hooks. So it's like, it's, it's different because I 99% of the time I do no gi, I add heel hooks and reaps and I'm used to those techniques and now I'm not allowed to do it. So, um, you know, and it's very likely that I'll be going against guys that don't do heel hooks at all. Yeah. yeah Even yeah. at the black belt level, you know, guys that don't do heel hooks usually or are, aren't super knowledgeable in heel hooks that are used to the IBJJF rule set without the gi and without reaping and now that's what i'm going into so i'm gonna have to modify my strategy a little bit i guess yeah you're gonna have to learn clean jujitsu you're gonna have to get rid of that garbage gutter jujitsu that you guys do you (laughs) foot fetishists so (laughs) um, i I guess the one other thing that we should mention before we move on past ibjjf probably the area where people often get into the most trouble with ibjjf and understanding the rules is the reaping rule right and in ibjjf leg reaping is illegal and it's it's very hard to describe what that means using just words uh in fact even using images it's very hard to kind of explain it but yeah uh and the rules are not even entirely enforced consistently but basically the idea is if you're taking your leg and like wrapping it around your opponent's leg from the outside going inward it's considered a reap and you can get disqualified for doing that. Uh, I'm trying to think of kind of like an easy example to explain this. Um, 
Single leg X, yeah. bring the leg across. Yeah, if you were going to pull single leg X on someone, um, you know how you've got like the one, one like your knee is kind of like wedged in there and then your outside foot, usually your heel is like pushed up against their hip. If you just keep driving that foot across and it like forces your opponent's knee to buckle and they have to turn away, that's a reap. And that kind, that kind of thing can get you disqualified. And the idea, the logic is that, uh, you know, like knee attacks, particularly twisting attacks are so dangerous that they must be outlawed now yet toe holds are allowed knee bars are allowed this is the thing that i find especially baffling is i mean from my perspective the toe hold is i think probably the most overall dangerous submission in jujitsu it's just from what i've seen when people get injured it's often with toe holds there's very little give uh, in terms of like when it's safe and when it's not Uh, you can throw that on there and there's not a lot of like muscle in in the body that allows you to prevent the toe hold from happening so if someone grabs it and really cranks onto you they don't really have a good barometer for exactly how much danger you're in and you don't really have any like muscles that you can tense up to to alleviate the pressure in Uh, fact that could Go yeah, like, yeah. Go, that could work against you if you tense up during well, a toehold. Yeah, I mean, it, it's... Like, kick into it. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. And, of course, toeholds also attack, you know, not just the ankle, but also the knee. So I've found it very weird that those are considered legal, but heel hooks are not. I mean, I, I, I don't think heel hooks against a trained opponent... Uh, are especially dangerous. I mean, if you are at training with an experienced heel hooker and you yourself are experienced enough to know where the danger lies, honestly, they're pretty safe, at least from my experience. As long as you're not like trying to Superman your way out of a submission, it should yeah. be pretty safe. As long as you learn proper heel hooks, it's safe. If you, you know, the, th- the thing is, is like maybe, what was it, five to eight years ago before you started seeing like Gary Tonin get really famous and all the Dan Her Death Squad sort of exploded onto the scene with this uh, leg leg lock system that was really sophisticated at the time and obviously still is really sophisticated. And it was catching a lot of people off guard. You would see them go into tournaments and just go to Ashigurami on everybody and and basically submit everybody with these leg locks because nobody really knew what they were trying to do and which way to go and what strategy they should impose, how to hide their heel, all this stuff. So you'd, you'd see these, these leg locks where, um, you know, really hard to stop. So, I mean, nowadays, if you, if you know anything about leg locks, it's, it's actually really hard to, to catch guys. I find when you're doing heel hooks on people that understand what you're trying to do to them. And yeah, it's just, it's interesting how the game has evolved that way. And still IBJJF, I feel, is falling behind because all these world-class grapplers, you know, I think that they should be competing in IBJJF as it is sort of known as the most prestigious event, but still they don't have things like heel hooks and reaps. So how could it be more prestigious than something like an ADCC, which allows, you know, most submissions? And oddly enough, ADCC, like they actually don't allow all submissions. Like they don't allow full nelsons and things like that so what exactly as someone who doesn't compete and doesn't really follow this what exactly is the difference between like the adcc rule set and ib or sorry let before we even do that just like maybe even just general nogi grappling what is the Mm -hmm. the primary difference between and i understand that 
general nogi grappling is not like an official rule set but yeah but in general when you go into like a naga tournament what would be the differences in the yeah. rule set that you'd have to know about uh very in terms of naga it's very minor differences from ibjjf i think they actually made some changes because i recently did a naga and i thought one of the rules is you know you don't need a guard to score if you sweep so if you sweep from like bottom side control or bottom mount a position where you don't have guard you come up on top i i, I thought that that reversal was worth points but at at the last Naga, they weren't scoring that. They were so it seemed like they were following the IBJJF model a little bit more. So it's it's pretty similar. They they sometimes change the weight classes and the and the you know the times of the matches and things like that. But for the most part, it was pretty pretty uh, similar in the nogi divisions though the expert they do allow heel hooks and reaps got and it got it got and it. even ibjjf doesn't do that right so re really the main difference is probably just the ability to reap and the ability to heel hook right like everything yeah. else is kind of minor compared to those two yeah pretty much those are kind of the two major things and i think they allow twisters you know like spine cranks and things like that so it's pretty open with the rule set and i like to support right. tournaments like that a little bit more got it um and you know, and you were asking about like nogi rule sets. Like you said, there's no unified nogi rule set, but pretty much it's usually either submission only, which is, you know, it's either going to be like submission only and then ref's decision to a draw, or it's going to be submission only with an EBI rule set, right? And we can talk about that more in a sec. And then the other option would be like a point structure, which is going to be either an IBJJF system or an ADCC rule set, which is quite a bit different from IBJJF. So Got it. ADCC, there's, you know, the first five minutes of the match are points, last five minutes of the match are, or sorry, first five minutes are not points, last five minutes are points. Are, is the point um, system the same as like IBJJF or is it a completely different point system? It's actually completely different. Uh, there's no advantages. So if you take someone down and then and they, you know, you have them for like two seconds and then they pop back up. You don't even get an advantage for that. Um, that would be it, it doesn't score unless you hold them down for three seconds. And uh, yeah, the points come in halfway through the match. Also, I believe certain positions are worth uh, worth worth different amounts of points. God, I'm going to butcher this. I believe takedowns are still worth two. And I think mount and back are worth three. I could be wrong, but I'm uh, not. I'm not sure. Yeah, exactly. don't take us to the to the bank on this one. I would say, in general, definitely look up and make sure you really understand the rules yeah. of any tournaments that you go into. This is a very common mistake where people they will lose not necessarily because of skill but because they fail to understand the intricacies of the local tournament rules yeah like that's 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 all you know that's such a big thing you could be a really high level jujitsu fighter but if you don't understand the rules you don't understand what's legal what's not legal and how to play the game and things like this and you know like in for example with the adcc rule set if you want to play guard you can pull guard in the first five minutes without penalty without even making contact but let's say you're on your feet and you know you're about to enter the halfway mark in your match you know if you want to be on your butt you have to pull before that before that halfway mark otherwise you know you're going to get penalized after that and that's just one thing that's just for example one thing that could be uh you know, that could surprise someone who's not prepared for that rule set. So what exactly is the logic here between behind having no points in the first five minutes and then having points suddenly come on in the last five minutes? That just seems yeah. weird to me. Is there some justification for that or is that just always the way it's been? I mean, I think I think the justification would be that they want to cater to different grappling arts. 
So if whether you have a jujitsu background and you like to pull guard, they want to give you an opportunity to pull guard. But if you're a wrestler, they also want you to have an opportunity to be able to use your wrestling to get a win, right? So if it goes to overtime or whatever, it kind of denies the guy the ability to pull guard, right? So they want to they want to give. I guess, multiple grappling styles and equal share, which is interesting. And you used to see more polarized styles back in the day for ADCC. You used to see like, you know, a jujitsu guy, a catch wrestler, a Sambo guy. And, and, and it was kind of like MMA when it first started. And now everything is sort of blending together and basically much the, like MMA. <laughs> yeah. And the most, the most dominant grappling art seems to be Brazilian jujitsu with wrestling and with, you know, leg locks and things like that. Got it. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. And I, you know, I kind of respect that because it's hard to come up with a rule set that's going to work for everyone. And the problem is any martial art that is actually um, undergoing a lot of stiff competition. Like if you, if people are really actively training something and it becomes a very competitive art and there's a lot of very, very good talent there, there are going to be new strategies introduced all the time. And those strategies may or may not make sense under the existing rule system. So mm -hmm. I think it's good that they're trying to come up with something that works for everyone. And I, I kind of get that. Like, um, in the first five minutes, do what you want. But in the last five minutes, you know, you stalling is not really going to be so much an option. Yeah. Suddenly points are on, whereas they weren't before. So that's kind of a, I think a good marriage between allowing like the slow methodical grappling approach to kind of all go up against a more speed based approach. Yeah. Like that's one of the things that drives me nuts about MMA is five minute rounds, like especially with a super, super emphasis on getting top position in MMA, it means that grappling is really kind of nerfed. Like it's, you know, against a high level guy getting, getting Getting a lot done in five minutes can be pretty challenging, right? Like it's really hard to get someone to the floor and finish them with within five minutes, especially without the gi. So that's one of the things about MMA that always kind of drives me crazy is it feels like grappling is kind of being punished. So yeah, I think it's cool that they've got kind of a, a rule set that tries to accommodate everybody. Yeah. And you do have to look at it really strategically. So, you know, if you, for example, let's say you're fighting under the ADCC rule set and you, you know, it's the first five minutes of the match and you've taken your partner down or your opponent down and you've, you know, you're on top and you've passed and then, you know, it, you, you, so far there's no score. And then as the clock is ticking down, if you continue the sequence and maybe force taking the back before the points are on, you deny yourself points, right? So you really have to have a, like, like I said, a mindfulness of, of what's going on and where, what time it is. And, you know, don't score too early because the clock is ticking and you want to wait for those, for the, for the right time to get your points. Um, and, and this is, this is all through grappling, you know, any sport, actually, any sport, right? use, using the rules to your advantage, playing the clock to your advantage. Um, yeah, I mean, we all want to be like purists where just the best martial artist wins. But, you know, a, a big part of being the best martial artist is not being the most deadly or even the most skilled, but it's about being the best at the entire martial art, which means apl applying and understanding the rules. And, yeah. and this is not a strategy that is unique to um, martial arts. I mean, any sport or really any competitive aspect of life is a situation where you want to make sure that you maximize the rules to your advantage. I mean, if you've ever had to like be involved with anything relating to like taxes or legal matters, you understand this, right? Like it's not enough to be like right or wrong. You have to actually play to the rules. If you do your taxes properly, you can wind up with a lot more money in your pocket than if you didn't. Um, I know people who just for the longest time didn't really care about how their tax structure and they just kind of ignored it. And then at one point they wound 
found they realize like I'm losing like 30 percent of my income because my tax structure is not appropriate for what I'm trying to do. Um, and, and, you know, we've talked in earlier episodes about how when there when the level of technique is in the same stratosphere between two people any advantage that you have over the other person becomes mm-hmm. a big deal. Like if I'm as a black belt, if I'm fighting a white belt, honestly, it doesn't matter how big or strong they are. I'm, I'm really not concerned, right? They could be 400 pounds of solid muscle and I'll probably figure out a way to do something. But if you're both at roughly the same experience level, then suddenly any advantage you have becomes way more important. Now, you may not be the biggest guy or the strongest guy or the fastest guy, but you might be the guy who best understands the rules. And that is an advantage. It's like, you know, people often when they think of advantages, they think of like physical gifts that they have over their opponent. But even a superior understanding of the rule set can be a massive advantage and can win you a lot of matches over people who probably would be otherwise better than you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, uh, for for example, with ADCC, you know, they don't give advantages for near takedowns or near sweeps. So if I'm playing on my butt and, you know, points, and you are and, and I will be and points are engaged. If I go for a sweep and I, I pretty much sweep you and then before I get my score, you stand back up. It's pretty easy in the moment if you're not experienced to just stand up right then and there. But but if you stand up, not only do you not score, but you forfeit the ability to pull guard again, right? So, you know, th- this this takes a lot of mindfulness during the match as well to know that if you don't score the, the sweep, just sit right back down, right? Or better yet, don't even come up to your feet um, because you could get awarded or uh, you could get penalized one point, right? So it's it, it really is a, a game, as well, as well as a fight. And I will say that the ADCC rule set is definitely probably the most uh, violent of the grappling arts aside from combat jujitsu. But even, a, you know, I don't know, you know, combat jujitsu. Slapping is, really like, I, yeah, it's violent, but it, it's kind of silly. It's kind of, I mean, I think it's kind of silly. I think they kind of, unfortunately, Eddie Bravo kind of spoiled his event and made it combat jiu-jitsu now, which I I totally miss the old structure. And I think a lot of people miss the old rule set as well. Because for me, I found that uh, EBI with combat jiu-jitsu basically just turns into jiu-jitsu from the close guard. You know, like it turns turns into tighter jiu-jitsu and some matches guys don't even throw strikes. But they know that there's the threat of it. They just, you don't see it as much. Well, I mean, now granted, I am 100% ignorant on this. I've I like know nothing about striking and I know nothing about combat jujitsu other than that you can slap people. But I would think that at the highest levels, that would not be as much of a discouragement as something like MMA, where you have, you know, fist protectors and you can effectively punch the person as hard as you want. I would think that that would be much more of a threat than a slap. Yeah. And I think these MMA guys that are, you know, good grapplers can easily transition into combat jujitsu and be like, well, I'm just, I'm not even getting punched. Yeah. It's like, (laughs) what's the big deal? It's, you know, this is going to be easy for me. This is going to be fun for me, right? And then you got you got Eddie Bravo, who just recently made the uh, the Python control illegal in combat jiu-jitsu, which is the Wagner Hocha hand over the mouth position. Why is that illegal? So he's, he said his just uh, he justified it by saying that because it's the dirtiest part of your body, you're not allowed to put it over someone's face. But you're slapping people in the face with your palms. That so makes no like, sense. It, it makes no sense. If it's, you're really concerned about like close contact hygiene, you are in the wrong sport. <laughs> like, I think he thinks it's too cheap, to be honest. Uh, I mean, I like Wagner's going to use it on his guys. I don't know. <laughs> it just seems weird. Like you're you're allowing people to like twist your spine out of alignment, but you're not allowing them to like cover your mouth. 
yeah odd line to draw yeah i know and and it's jujitsu i mean it's pretty gross where sweat is going in each other's mouths and eyes oh i hate it when you're like, like grappling with someone and they're like in yeah. top position and then they like sweat and it like falls into your mouth <sighs> yeah i mean it's uh, is it is it uh unclassy to put your hand over someone's face maybe but it's also very effective well we've talked about this in the past too right like being a common mistake that people make is they get dogmatic and they're too worried about what's classy and what's not classy and at the end of the day you need to do what works like if you are if you are avoiding doing a technique because people frown on it even though it's technically within the rules you're actually really really going to hurt yourself right like at the end Mm -hmm. of the day you need to understand um you know first of all what what is legal and then second are, are there any areas of the legal rules that you can exploit where people might not be ready for them like the whole leg lock game is a great example of that right that's an asymmetric warfare strategy where people realize that there was this whole area of the game that was being effectively disregarded because some genius had decided that like leg locks were a low class technique so everyone just avoided them and look at what happened now right like the whole game has completely changed as soon as someone exploited that Um, it seems crazy to me that stuff like covering the mouth would be a, a problem I don't know that I har- I do not see that as like a dirty or a low class technique at all. And it does work. I mean, even if you're not trying to suffocate the person, um, it, it is actually an effective way to control. I oh, mean, it's the worst. And like, like think about holding a tight mount position. I like to drive my chest right on top of the person's mouth right across their face because it's it's first of all it's so close that they can't establish frames but man it's just it's demoralizing and it's, it's actually pretty hard to breathe at times and it just exhausts you having someone's someone's belly right in your face especially if they're like hairy and don't have a shirt on underneath <laughs> it's pretty bad so i think that that is a you know it, it's just grappling and um it's part of the rules just like i think that if you get neck cranked it's also part of the rules you know i i think that complaining when things like neck cranks are dirty or whatever is kind of just it's kind of silly but um but yeah and you know just speaking as a gym owner and as a competitor and and as a coach um, I think it's really important for people to, if you can, at least try refereeing if, if you're, you know, if, if you are in the competitive jujitsu scene in, in some way, shape or form, or if you just want to educate yourself on the rules, you can check out, uh, there's a YouTube page called IBJJF tutorials, which is just short clips about, you know, rules that they have rule changes. And it's, uh, you know, I always learn stuff when I watch them. So even at the black belt level, I'm, I was amazed at how little I actually knew about the game of jujitsu. And after studying those things and sort of uh, and sharing them with my clubs, we actually started a a competition class. And a lot of the time what we're doing is we're making scenarios. We're talking about strategies and and rule sets. And I think it's really important that if you want to have a competitive jujitsu team at your school, you need to have at least one day a week where the training is focused around the rules and the strategies, not just learning techniques and doing, you know, sparring and and uh, doing drills and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if nothing else, even if you have no interest in ever competing, it's still interesting to learn that because it teaches you to be aware of the situation around you. You realize that there's more at stake than just the technical jujitsu that you're doing, but that there is a more uh, a more contextual environment that you need 
need to pay attention to. It's very important not to get tunnel vision when you're trying to solve a problem and forget what's happening in the world around you. So the yeah, the other thing, too, that's always interesting is if you want to compete in a tournament, it's a great experience to have some white belt yell at you because he didn't like the way you scored his match. That's always super duper fun. Yeah, I see that all the time. It's pretty funny. I get a kick out of people who just like lose their mind because they like lost a local tournament white belt thing like they they just take it so seriously and you want to give them some context and be like buddy you're in a high school gymnasium this is a white belt tournament (laughs) it's like it's not even like it's like citywide it's a tiny tiny tournament but you're acting like this is life and death for you just you know grow up (laughs) yeah or it's a parent where's the points (laughs) where's the points for side control which is you know if you if you know the rules at all you know that there's no points for side control i would actually like to see them change that i i think we've talked about this before i think that rather than getting three for passing you should get three for side control for just landing in side control yeah and i think that rather than have uh, i think that you should also get two points for reversing as well i don't think it should just be sweeps yeah yeah no i tend to agree with that one starting on the bottom and then finishing in a top position like an oompa sweep or like reversing from side control ending up in top side i I mean but then do you get points for the sweep and you get points for side control uh from what situation so you're on the bottom yeah, in like like we're lying in a t position you're you're in a top pin and so like, I, side I have control. side control on you and yeah. you like and Hercules i flip you over out. and i get up on top do i get sweet points and side control points like to me that doesn't make sense i don't know i mean from my perspective all that matters is the result right i mean if i'm able to get you into a position that dominant i don't see any problem with having the points for it it mm-hmm. you know I, if, because because if you swept from an oompa sweep and ended up in in mount you would get two for the sweep and then you'd get your mountain points as well yeah 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 you would so under the uh, staying consistent with that you would get points for side yeah if you if you swept from the guard you would get six points right if you assuming that you swept from the guard and into mount yeah so so what would side control be worth then I, I think three points is fine. Three points, same yeah. as a guard pass. Yeah, I also think they should get rid of the neon belly points and just consider that a form of side control uh, because mainly I find that to be super cheap. Like going from <laughs> it is cheap. Going from side control to mount is a challenge. Going from yeah. side control to neon belly is super easy. So this is like kind of a way to game the system. You just go to side control briefly go to neon belly that you don't even plan to use and then just go back down it's like a it's a cheap way to get two points i don't see why it should be weighted as heavily as like a takedown or a sweep yeah i mean debatable i mean i'm not saying it's not an effective position i'm just saying i don't think you need an additional two points on top of the three that you already got for passing yeah no i i I get it and and people are going to agree and people are going to you know disagree and I, i i think that you know for example i think like any form of back control should be points. Like I think uh, a body triangle should be four points. I think that uh, yeah, I agree. crucifix should be awarded points because you have both of his arms isolated, you know, and it's he's totally out of position there. Yeah, so yeah. I think like when it comes sh- to I think when it comes to back control, the obsession over having the hooks is kind of silly. Like as long as you're chest to back, I think that should be four points. Yeah, unless I, you're in like turtle or something. Uh huh. Like as as much as I I kind of don't like the ebi rule set i will i will say it, it it can be pretty entertaining to watch um but it's also something that i don't really find very fun to compete on, under i'd rather just do like points or or even just a referee's decision or submission only right but going to the overtime rounds i think that a crucifix would be a cool position to start in like if you can do arm bar position why wouldn't why can't you start in a crucifix position yeah, that's fair enough i think it'd be a pretty sweet position you to can, start if in. you can start from an arm bar why can't you start from a crucifix yeah. and just and just like you know a, a lot of people who are you know no gi grapplers 
EBI rule set is kind of their main rule set that they train for. Like specifically a lot of 10th planet guys, they get really good from the spider web. They get really good from the back control. And as a result, they funnel their strategy to just get it to overtime. You know, in a lot of the match, yeah. they're, they're very hard to put away. A lot of these guys from these schools. So another interesting example of how like the rules can completely change the art in a way that maybe wasn't intended you know just as soon as people realize that you can exploit the rules in a certain way it can actually fundamentally change the underlying art itself yeah that's the funny part is the whole argument for sub only was it's like oh this is this is the essence of jujitsu you know trying to go for the submission that's what jujitsu is really about but then (laughs) but but then you know, you actually put it into practice and you give it an overtime round. And what ends up happening is that guys will just dick around for the first 10 minutes and, and just, you know, they won't overcommit too much and, and basically just get it to overtime. And then they just heavily rehearse the overtime positions. And that's sort of their whole strategy. So either way, it's very difficult to come up with a rule set that doesn't that's not exploitable. Yeah, every every sport is going to have rules and every rule set will be exploitable in some manner. Yeah. And it's kind of a nightmare to keep patching the rules without like having the game changing so often that people are just getting confused and frustrated and never able to really get good at it. But yeah, I mean, a big part of any kind of competitive endeavor is finding the weaknesses in the rules that you can exploit. And, uh, you know, in the, in the case of like a submission only tournament, you know, we've talked in the past about how really the essence of jujitsu is position over submission. And the one thing about the IGBJJF rules that I like is they reward position over submission, right? In fact, submissions are worth almost nothing at all unless you actually score one um and that that is one situation where i think the rules themselves have led to making the martial arts stronger by encouraging positional dominance but yeah if you have a martial art that ultimately is funneling you into submissions instead of into uh, positions then yeah that's what you're going to get you're going to wind up with people kind of like judo where you know the whole goal is to basically stall and stall and get out of trouble and then hit a kill shot right in in judo it's an epon but in like an ebi tournament it would be a submission so they're kind of trying to stall out of the rest of the game and then get to the easy win yeah and and i like the ibjjf rule set as well because they they will penalize passivity whereas (laughs) submission only doesn't so you could actually have just as boring of a match in a submission only setting and then it gets to overtime and then it's like two cats fighting yeah Yeah. well (laughs) so out of curiosity (laughs) basically the essence of jujitsu anyways in a nutshell is two cats fighting so out of curiosity under ebi rules when you go to uh like sudden death what are the different positions that someone can start from and how does that work does like what is it like a shootout in hockey where basically okay, yeah and, and like, what positions can you choose from like it's the arm bar or the back control so you can actually choose to start fr- directly from an arm bar i'm assuming with like hands clasped or something yeah like the sit-up arm bar position oh, okay with okay. yeah hands but only clasped. only those two positions yeah i can't start from mount i want mount and go until someone regards no one's going to regard on my mount. It's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'm going um, to put my fat chest in their face, just like you suggested, and suffocate way, yeah. them. Um, but yeah, those are the two main positions. And then they do like riding time. So, you you know, if you get a submission, then the other person, it depends whose turn it is, but the other person might get an attempt to get a submission in a lesser amount of time than you did. Right. And then if you no one submits each other at the end of three rounds, they do the longest riding time. Got it. So. Either way, there's always ways to sort of game the system, yeah. and it's kind of impossible to make it 
like impartial just because everyone comes from different backgrounds everyone has different strengths and strategies and the sport is evolving too right like even if someone were able to actually create a rule set that worked for everybody someone's going to invent some new strategy that's going to turn the whole thing on his head right like part of being a good competitor in any endeavor is finding a way to win within the rules and that will probably mean creating a strategy that is unforeseen by your opponents but still technically legal yeah. What would be your ideal rule set? Because I, like I said, I think mine is IBJJF and then you add the heel hooks. And the yeah, for, for me and in the gi, I think I think it should be allowed in the gi too. Yeah. For me, IBJJF, my ideal rule set would be IBJJF, reaping is legal, heel hooks are legal. Um, let's say it like brown or purple belt, whatever. Um, I think that a lot of the stuff that is legal at brown, like knee bars, should probably be legal at purple. Uh, that would be my my thought. I, I agree with that. Yeah, in, in terms of the points, like we talked about, I think that um, reversals should be worth two points, just like sweeps. I think um, instead of getting points for passing, you should get points for having side control. So three for side control instead of three for passing. For dominant positions. Yeah, yeah. And I think that the neon belly points are maybe a bit overkill. Uh, what, I, what about jumping guard? This is a tough one because like, I I don't know how I feel about like banning moves because they're too dangerous. You know, that was the logic behind reaping and that's effectively the logic behind jumping guard. Um, I mean, my thought would be if you don't want people to jump guard on you, just don't stand there. <laughs> you know, you can, uh, there's not, there's nothing preventing you from also trying to pull a guard. I think that jumping guard is kind of a, a crap thing to do to the other guy. Uh, at the highest levels, sure, it's fine. But I, I think that if you want to have like an example of a technique that should be banned until like maybe purple brown or black belt i think jumping guard could be one of those yeah do i i think heel hook should be allowed at black belt and really and all the other moves should be allowed at purple belt yeah i was gonna say i don't think heel hooks are so inherently dangerous that they need to be banned until black i mean i think heel hooks at yeah you're probably pur- brown right. or even purple is fine it's toe holds that freak me out more than anything if someone jumps guard on you should you be able to slam them yeah we, we've talked about this before i think that the ideal rule set has to take into account that slamming is a reality um i heard someone propose i was talking to someone on like reddit or discord or something and we were talking about this specifically and their suggestion was maybe rather than like allowing slams which i mean ultimately uh, against a good opponent unless you knock the guy out a slam is it's going to hurt him but it probably won't actually change the course of the match so this guy's suggestion was maybe well maybe award some sort of points for like getting some into slamming position like maybe say slams are illegal but if you can herk someone up into a slamming position okay fine you can have like some points for that. <laughs> I, th- I think it can totally change the the course of a match just look at jeff glover and geo martinez a few years ago at adcc jeff got jeff had him in a triangle and you're allowed to i, I like this rule you're allowed to slam out of submissions so to me that makes sense yeah yeah if, if your <laughs> submission is weak if you enough have a choice to let it go yeah yeah like if you're and, and also if your submission is so weak that your opponent has the proper alignment to basically power their way out of it from my perspective you have not really applied the submission effectively uh this is a, a very very common mistake with stuff like triangles right i mean a lot the thing about triangles is because slams are illegal I don't think people realize how dangerous a triangle choke really is because you are, you know, we've talked about body tethering in the past. You have tethered your entire body to your opponent and the rules grant you mercy on this. But in like MMA or in a real fight, if you're not actually doing that triangle properly, you're going to get slammed. And that that is absolutely not a place that you want to be in. Yeah, I, I guess I guess really what it comes down to is, are you the kind of grappler who wants to re- uh, to compete under a like a non-point system like a submission only system 
or a point system like an ADCC or an IBJJF, as different as those two are. Mm-hmm. They're they're quite different, but they do both follow the, you know, the positional style of jujitsu and i used throughout my career i've gone back and forth about which ones i prefer you know if i lose a points tournament i'd be like fucking hate these points tournament i want to do a submission only tournament i lose this mission only tournament oh god i wish it was a points tournament i'd do so much better right so yeah yeah it's kind of one of those things but i think ultimately points there's a reason why there's points there's a reason why positional uh dominance is so important in jujitsu and why putting an emphasis on regarding and uh you know alignment and things like that and work you know passing your opponent's guard working towards isolating their head and shoulders you know these are all positions that you can land more damage in theory in a real fight so that's why they're awarded points i mean i will say this in a lot of situations i'm not really a big fan of like the idea of a point system because to your point it can encourage you to like play towards the point system rather than trying to actually win um can't but, get rid of that though yeah but but the thing is i would say that in the case of ibjjf i think the point system generally makes a lot of sense and i think it it makes the art stronger rather than weaker like there's things i don't like about ibjjf but in general the way that their point system is structured it encourages a control-based approach which i think is better than a like a kind of like gambling approach yeah, yeah where you're like you're kind of like diving for submissions yeah. I, so i think it's it's succeeded in that front um so i would say that as long as it's done properly i'd probably prefer a points-based approach yeah and i think it keeps the action moving a little bit more too i think it's a little bit more exciting than i mean ebi is fun when you have two competitors who are game and are going for it but if you have two two competitors that really aren't going for anything it, it can all it can be just as boring as a boring points match as well so yeah it really depends on uh, the two competitors and it depends on the styles as well yeah there, there's like there's no way to legislate excitement <laughs> you know you you can't create a rule set that's going to guarantee things are going to be exciting all the time you because can penalize though for passing you, you can you can definitely penalize but i mean you know you see this in in mma all the time a lot of the time a fight that's supposed to be really exciting just winds up not being um you can't you yeah. can't guarantee something is going to be exciting there's no point system that's going to make that happen every time yeah it's going to be styles right that makes it uh, more exciting yeah than and and you know like we're always talking about there are always going to be people using the points you know one thing to think about is when you're in the gym you're always you're always training and watching around you and making sure you're not bumping into people and you know i made the mistake as a competitor for um for always trying to let's say do things the the most ethical way like be the most honest competitor i can be and that that's not always the best thing you want to do like sometimes if you're competing and you know you're going against someone who is there's a chance that they might take you down or if you're in the middle of a takedown sequence and you happen to be uh you know in the center of the ring you give them a better chance to score but if you play around the outside a little bit quite often you can use things like the border if you're careful with how you do it you can exploit the rules and avoid but i I would say score i would say that's not a rule exploit at all that's playing within the rules completely right i mean a rule uh, you you know you're not cheating what no you're not cheating you're just using the geography effectively that's right no no that's right and that's the other way to look at it right because you are kind of cheating the rules in a way but you're right you're not breaking any rules so it's really in my opinion comes down to a higher fight iq and a higher awareness of where you are on the mat like you said geographically and these little tricks are everywhere throughout jujitsu and everywhere throughout life honestly and honestly yeah and everywhere throughout life like you mentioned tax returns and things like that earlier so you know really like empowering yourself with knowledge and and trying to learn those rules and if like i said if you're a gym owner or you have a competition team or you want to give some more life to your 
competition team and uh, and increase their chances of being successful. I think one of the best things you can do is have a comp class where you you focus almost exclusively on scenarios that involve strategy and points and you learn the points. And even if one person is uh, at least an act, like one person is a referee um, and you teach each other how to referee properly, that is one of the most effective things you can do for a, a competition team. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, on, one thing that I've I've learned and I've kind of adopted as a as a as a principle for living is you know rather than trying my hardest to to win even if I'm trying in like the uh, maybe not the most efficient or the most optimal scenario it's a lot better to create scenarios or find scenarios where it's easy to win. <laughs> a mistake a lot of people make yeah. is to like almost kill themselves trying to get what they want. But a far better approach is to cultivate an environment or a situation where getting what you want is a lot easier. Um, like in, in the case of life, you know, this a lot of this comes down to like tax strategy and stuff and just avoiding situations where that could be high risk to yourself. But in the case of jujitsu, you know, if you're competing, a lot of that is like knowing your real estate right if you are playing the borders of the mat to that's going to restrict your opponent's takedown options and that's not necessarily a bad thing it's it's definitely not illegal um you've read the four hour work week right by tim ferris yeah so at at the beginning of the book and i it's been a long time since i've read this so i might butcher it but he's got the story about how he won a martial arts championship and it it wasn't now despite the fact that he is a bjj black belt it wasn't jujitsu i think it was karate or something but what he did was basically he played to the rules he found some like weird rule exploit that nobody was paying attention to that basically said something like if you push the other person out of the ring three times you automatically win it was some ridiculous thing (laughs) so all of these other people were trying to do karate with him and he was basically doing sumo and just like pushing guys out of the out of the ring and everyone was getting pissed at him but he won (laughs) just because he was he was kind of playing a completely different game that was still within the boundary of the rules and uh that's that's in my mind a great example of like finding the easiest way to victory by understanding the rule set that you're in Uh, you know you don't have to be the most talented you don't have to be the most athletic but understanding and exploiting the rules is an advantage just like having good cardio or having height or weight it's it's a skill just like grappling so don't ignore it Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, for sure. And it, and it, like I said, it, you know, you do have to maybe I'd check out that IBJJF tutorials video because this this information isn't like easily. I it's mean, incredibly hard to find it, good, it, accurate information. Yeah, like it, you can find the information like you can download the rule book on the IBJJF website, but it's you know, you're, you're reading through like pages and pages. I think these videos really illustrate it quickly and they allow you to learn it quickly, but also applying it and recognizing it in a real situation is a skill on its own that takes it basically like i'll be honest it, it took me a few tournaments refing to finally get it and during those tournaments i had head referees sh- shadow me and give me uh constructive criticism on the spot so i was basically like mentored a little bit yeah and yeah. that is really valuable if you're learning anything yeah. so i mean i know people a lot i know people love to crap on refs especially in mma it's like oh these guys how can you make that call you don't know what you're doing i mean it is so hard to make like a split second call like that yeah. with very minimal context, very minim- minimal visibility. Being a ref is not easy. And especially because there are so many rules and some of them are very esoteric and weird. And you've got to keep all of that stuff in your head at the same time. Like it's not easy to be a ref, but it's a good experience to get that under your belt for sure. 
Yeah, and as a like to become a high level competitor, it helps so much to have that experience. Um, from a referee's point of view, you kind of take a step back from the fight and you're able to see the match from a bird's eye view and you see it differently and you score it differently. And I realize now when I compete, like if I get a sizable lead, like it happened to me in the last tournament I was in is I, I was going against a, a, a good guy and he, it was a size, I had a sizable lead because I managed to pass his guard and went on and I knew he was going for the inside position. He was playing pretty much under the Danaher leg lock system. And I knew he'd be trying to get heel hooks. That was his, you know, there's like a minute and a half left. I knew he wouldn't be able to, to catch up on the scoreboard easily. So I, I, as long as I was able to avoid his attacks, I was willing to, to risk like taking a penalty here or there, you know, because I know in the end it's not going to matter because I'm so ahead on the points. As long as I don't get so many penalties that I get DQ'd, which under a minute and a half is pretty much impossible. But like I stayed to the outside. I, I almost I stayed just active enough in his guard and then would disengage so that he would get frustrated and not get any leg entanglements. Um, and I actually at one point was in a, a reap and I managed to spin out of a heel hook. But, I, you know, I, it was close. So I kind of, you know, I made a mistake there. And, and that kind of uh, experience and ability to acknowledge what's going on is a really, uh, it takes, it takes years to develop. And now, nowadays in, especially in IBJJF tournaments, I don't even really use leg locks to finish people anymore. Uh, I think one of the best applications of leg locks is to attack, uh, attack a leg lock so that you can come up with a sweep because you're, you know, it's hard to finish leg locks a lot of the time, but quite effectively you can use it to make your opponent respect the leg lock and then you can come up and get your points and uh you know on the same token if you go for leg locks a lot of the time what your partner will do is he will either get swept or he'll give you back exposure and during his escape so knowing that you can always use the leg lock attempt in a positive way if you have that type of foresight whereas if you're just going into leg locks thinking about how you're going to finish the leg lock it can be pretty disheartening when you when you don't finish the leg lock. You put a lot into it, and then all of a sudden it fails, and you're tired, and you you know you feel unconfident with your technique. So having you know finding value in techniques that are kind of unexpected is really important as well. And again, just using something like that to to get a better position is super valuable as a competitor. Yeah, awesome. So in terms of the mental models that we talked about today, we talked about do what works. So this is especially important in the context of rule sets. Try to find the spots within the rule set that are still legal, but maybe underserved by your opponents. Those are often great situations where you can have a competitive advantage against someone who is otherwise more experienced and more athletic than you. We talked about asymmetric warfare, meaning trying to play to your strengths while playing to your opponent's weaknesses. It is usually not a good idea to attack your opponents where you are weak and they are strong. You want to do it the other way around. And we talked about body tethering in the context of jujitsu. Sometimes people kind of forget how dangerous it can be to tie yourself to your opponent. But if you're playing under a skill set where slams are illegal, then that is something you need to be acutely aware of. So in terms of questions, we've got a short one, Matt, but the answer might be a bit long. So we were asked, I understand the concepts for the most part of alignment, but how does that fit, say, a rear naked choke? So this person is looking specifically to understand how alignment would be applied in a rear naked choke. Like how, I, I guess the, the finishing mechanics. 
Probably the whole thing. I mean, we can kind of talk about it from top to bottom. Maybe a good place to start with is the scorecard, right? We've talked in the past about how alignment really has three components, posture, structure, and base. And one way to understand the effectiveness of your position versus your opponents is who has all three of those things and who doesn't. So, I mean, Matt, do you want to take this one away? Yeah. So, you know, just like we've talked about um, in the past, Rob Bernanke's uh, system for talking about alignment, posture, structure, and base, you know, this is basically just going to echo most of those concepts. And uh, I recommend that now that the submission formula with Rob Bernanke with Stefan Kesting on Grapple Arts is out, uh, definitely check that out. It would answer this question perfectly. But um, in terms of a rear naked choke, you know, you basically... There's many variations of rear naked chokes, depending on, or strangles as the Danaher guys like to call it, you know, depending on whether you're attacking your opponent's arteries or their windpipe, right? There's different mechanics depending on how you're going to do it. You could do a classic rear naked choke where the arteries are going to be blocked by your, you know, your forearm and your bicep, or you could do a sideways rear naked choke like you're seeing a lot of these days, uh, made almost famous, you know, I, I guess you could say Nicky Ryan kind of made it famous, but it's like a, uh, a rear naked choke that's off to the side where your the triangle in your arms is sort of shifted to the side. But generally speaking, um, you know, closing the using, using your arms as, uh, wedges and frames that basically create a triangle around your opponent's neck. And then, uh, definitely breaking their posture by applying a wedge behind their head is probably one of the more, important aspects of alignment breaking in a rear naked choke because you can you can um you know for for people out there that are looking to make their chokes a lot more powerful always think how can i break my my opponent's posture and uh, essentially push their chin into their chest is going to be one of the strongest ways you can you can make your chokes a lot stronger you know we tend to think it when we're when we're new to jiu-jitsu like getting that good squeeze and like that's kind of how i'm going to get my power that's how i'm going to finish the majority of my chokes but really i find a lot of the majority of chokes and and submissions in general anyways are uh a lot of it's based around how i can control my opponent's posture so yeah always pushing their head down creating a wedge on the back of their head so they can't escape these are kind of reoccurring patterns that happen in chokes that is a super important thing to bring up which is that a lot of the time when people are going for a, a choke they're focusing on just like squeezing or they're focused just on the carotid arteries but it's super important to understand that you want to like put pressure on the back of your opponent's head to kind of force their chin down to their chest that's part of what makes it really really powerful especially if you're going for a blood choke um Another thing to to bear in mind is that when you're talking about breaking posture, there's generally two ways to do it, right? Like posture means you can effectively position and utilize your spine and your core. Um, if you want to break that, basically you can either collapse the person's head, but like we said, by pushing the head down, or you can turn their neck to the side. Um, both are valid approaches, but in the context of a choke, Often, it's very helpful to try to find a way to push your opponent's head down and like get their chin to touch, to touch their chest. If you can do that, then not only is that going to make it a lot harder for them to escape, but it's also going to put a lot more pressure on the arteries and make the choke much stronger. Yeah, and I, I find one of, the, one of the best ways that I like to finish the rear naked choke is to push the pressure down into your opponent's chest, almost like you're pulling your elbows down into their chest and also trying to squeeze your elbows together, almost like you're creating a, like a scissoring movement around their head. Um, 
to make the you know the 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 space inside your arm smaller but generally speaking what i've been doing when i'm doing like rear rear strangles is i'm trying to actually choke at the base of the neck because i find that's where uh the gag reflex happens so if you get a choke around the base of the neck i find that it's a lot more effective and you can put more pressure on their neck than if you try to choke let's say around their jaw yeah yeah and this principle is true of basically any blood choke um like if you're going for a darce or an uh or like a triangle i mean you always want to try to collapse your opponent's head down that's always going to be a good thing to do if you're going for a blood choke cool cool but definitely check out the submission formula with rob bernacki i was going to ask you if there's anything you uh, wanted to plug but i think you've already got that covered (laughs) yeah and what about the uh the store yeah yeah so we've talked about it before but if you want to learn more about the mental models that we've talked about and also if you want to get in contact with us go to our site bjjmentalmodels.com if you want to buy our t-shirts or our gi patches you can get them at bjjmentalmodels.com slash store and if you want to join our mailing list and get even more information from us you can join at bjjmentalmodels.com slash join you can also follow us and chat with us on facebook and on instagram we love hearing from you guys we love hearing feedback it's awesome that you guys are so active with us we love hearing from you and if you have any questions or you're encountering any difficulties in your training please do reach out we would love to help so i think this was a good chat matt um hope you guys did find this useful and we'll guess we'll talk to you next time all right guys take care and happy taint hunting IBJJF sucks.